We have been going through the Gospel of Luke in various representative texts. I urge you to read the entire Gospel. We come now to another text in chapter 7 of Luke, and it is again towards the beginning of his ministry. And we find that in Luke chapter 7, it's, at least for me, it has been kind of a puzzling passage. It starts in verse 28, and it tells us about how people in the world don't give any breaks to believers, whether they're followers of John the Baptist who mourn over their sins or followers of Jesus who rejoice over their Savior. And he gives what I consider to be a bit of a puzzling parable. I hope you will understand it better as I try to explain it today, the parable of children playing in the marketplace. And let's see if we can understand what Jesus is saying. Chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. For the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall they compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon! The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him! A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of God. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. And shall we pray for that blessing? Lord, teach us to understand your word today in a deeper way. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. You'll have an outline in your insert. You can't win according to the world and according to the wisdom of God. With some people, you just can't win. Well, we're going to be using children as an illustration today, so I may as well use children again as an illustration. Perhaps you are going to go on a road trip. This has been popular since I was a child, traveling around the interstate highways all the way out to Montana or somewhere in the country, even by car. And, of course, that's not easy. And with your children, you want them to keep busy. But, you know, as soon as you get on the road, when are we going to get there? It's too hot. You turn on the air conditioner. It's too cold. These things happen to us. <laughs> we couldn't win. It was either too something or too something else. Just sit down and be quiet for a while. We don't have anything to do. And they're bored. Or they have too much to do at home. Please let us just sit and watch TV. You really can't win. Sometimes we just give up and say, forget about your complaints. Just go along for the ride. You can't please all the people 
all the time, but with some people, you can't please any of them at all. And we're all kind of like that. With some people, you can never please them. Now, in the world, we have Jesus Christ having come into the world, the very wisdom of salvation. But first, he sent John the Baptist into the world, a prophet of the Old Testament ilk, and he spoke of the need to repent. So first, the wisdom of salvation reveals to us sin, not a pleasant subject. And then it tells us of the only way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And therefore, for the Christian, we experience sorrow and joy. Notice the order. Sorrow has to come first. We may truly rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this passage is about wisdom. We want to understand how wisdom is justified by all her children. There's a parable for you. I don't think you're going to get that right away. What do you mean? Wisdom is justified by her children. Too many confusing things here. But according to the world, we find not wisdom, but foolishness. We have to understand that foolishness is bound up in our very hearts, even in the hearts of our children and of all parents. We are all, by nature, children of folly. We are like the world in its opposition to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist had to come and prepare the way of the Lord, because how are you going to receive a Savior if you don't think you need to be saved? If there's nothing wrong with you, why do you need someone to help you come to God? If you don't repent of your sin, you're not seeing anything right. You don't understand why the world is the way it is. You don't understand how much trouble you're in and why you have contributed to that trouble in your own life. You see problems in other people well enough, as Jesus would say. You have to stop looking at the speck in other people's eyes and take that big log out of your own eye first. And so Christ wants us to see how blind we are and how we need a Savior. For Christ and for Christians, the Pharisees were all over their case, and they loved to make fun of them one way or the other. The Pharisees were big spoil sports. They were self-righteous. They were grouchy, but they were also proud and said, we have the way to come to God. When Christ came and first John the Baptist to show people the way back to God, they said, wait a minute, we're in charge and we don't even know if we need a Savior. We'll pretend maybe for your sake, but we don't really think that we need any help for the Pharisees and for everybody in the world to start with. God himself cannot win. For the world, God is not seen as he really is. People either see him as cruel or kind of like a joke. He's like that old man up in heaven. We sometimes hear people speak of God in that kind of flippant way. The old man in the sky He's kind of harmless. Supposedly he has a long beard. He's looking down upon us. But really he's got nothing to do with us. And we can simply ignore him. Or he's the strict judge that will pour out fire and brimstone. 
We pick the God we want. If we're mad at somebody, we say, God will get you. Or we want to ignore God, we'll say, God won't get me. We pick the kind of God we want. We can argue with him, or we can ignore him as it might please us. But you know, every way God might reveal himself to us, we reject it. God can't win. The Bible says that people love evil and hate the good. Isaiah talked about that. You should learn to do good and hate evil. But that's not what we do. We would rather cease to do good and learn to do evil. Listen to what Isaiah 1 says. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's repentance. Oh no, what have we done? Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. But we don't want to do that. We think we're fine. That is why whatever God does in the world, he can't win. How many times have you heard people say, why does God, if he's a good God, allow such trouble in the world? Well, he's reminding us we're in deep trouble. We need him. We turned away from him. How do you think trouble got in the world? By Adam and Eve's sin and by rebellion and by our continued spurning of God's goodness and God's word. There's a whole branch of theology dedicated to showing that God is really good. And this is my big word of the day for you. I hope I won't give you too many other ones to have to remember. The word is theodicy. How many people have heard the word? Don't raise your hands. Theo is God. Dici means dikaio or justifying God. It's related to what our passage is going to talk about. Do we justify, do we declare God is right or do we think God is wrong? Which is it? The world thinks God is wrong if they think he exists. Christians need to learn that God is right when he speaks. So therefore, theodicy means to show that God is truly righteous. He could destroy the whole universe as he did in the days of Noah with those that were alive except for eight members of Noah's family. He had every right to destroy the whole world, but he didn't. He could actually condemn everyone, and no one could have a word to say, because there is none righteous, no, not one. If we are all sinners, and we deserve no good thing from God, then finally everything makes sense. We stop blaming other people. We stop blaming God. We start, stop justifying ourselves and say we're good people fundamentally. We stop looking at ourselves with a wonderful eye that says, boy, you're a great person. And things that we do don't count if they're against God. But Psalm 51, David, remember, was finally convicted of his sin of adultery and murder. And finally, after the prophet came to him and said, You're the guy who's stolen the man's sheep from next door. You had plenty of your own. David finally realized that he had committed adultery and that he should come to understand his sin and when Nathan the prophet says, you are the man, David says very simply, I have sinned against the Lord. It took him some time, but he finally admitted it. And he even talked about it in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be, here's this word again from our text, justified, that God may be justified in in your words and blameless in your judgment. What does that mean? That God is right. We start out life thinking God is wrong and that we're right. Everything's fine except everybody else, and certainly God doesn't know what he's doing. But that's wrong. We need to know that God is right, and we're wrong. Isn't that a simple thing? When we fail to repent, however, we not only like to do evil, we do it, and we blame God and condemn him because he called us sinners. How dare he? He dares because he's God, because he's holy, and he knows our hearts. And you can't fake it with God. He sees why you do things. He sees everything you do when you don't think anybody saw you do it. You snuck around and did it. But God knows. We say, well, he shouldn't say anything. How is that right? How is it that you should get away with all kinds of stuff against God and against others? Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because he talked about how many times God had spoken in his word and warned the people of Israel about idolatry and adultery and lying and murder and anything else that came to their minds. Jeremiah says that you have been given a warning I've stopped sending rain upon the earth. Did you say, well, we should have been thankful for the rain we had? No, you say, oh, why do we have such hard times? And you turn to me and you say, my father, you are the friend of my youth. Will you be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? In other words, God, why are you mad at me? As if he doesn't have a right to be. And then Jeremiah says, you talk nice to God. And wonder why he hasn't been kinder to you. You have spoken that way, but you have done all the evil that you could. Wow. What an indictment. What condemnation would come to us if we would simply see ourselves as God sees us. If we could not only see into our own hearts, but able to admit that that's where our sin comes from. Jesus says, out of the heart are the issues of life. See, no matter what, if you're not repentant, God can't win. Not if you're in charge of the world as you think. Not only can't God win if you don't repent, but Christ can't win. And of course, this is the occasion for his parable here. He says, look, John the Baptist came and warned about sin. Much like the Old Testament prophets, he brings the vision of judgment into their eyes. He says, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and you're the tree. He could chop you down at any time. But if you repent of your sins, he will not chop you down. He will give you new life. The Pharisees show up. They think, oh, it must be a prophet. We'll pretend. We'll pretend to follow John. And he says, you bunch of snakes who told you to flee from the wrath to come. They didn't really care about God's word. They ignored it. They twisted it. They made up their own rules and condemned people by that. And then they broke their own rules and said, we don't really count 
we can do what we want. You have to do what we say. Pharisees, therefore, are a brood of vipers, and they're faking it anyway. Do you think you can flee from God if the axe is laid at the root of the tree and you don't turn away from your sins? The fact of the matter is the Pharisees had lots of fun criticizing people. When John the Baptist came, he was a pretty ragged creature, you know. He had rags on and he ate locusts and wild honey. What a diet. And he kept telling people to repent of their sins. You know what? That John the Baptist, he's an old grouch. And he's a spoil sport. And maybe we can come and look at him, but we're not going to listen to what he says. So John the Baptist was warning them. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, as all the prophets would say in the Old Testament. And don't say, as they were thinking, we have Abraham as our father. That was their big go-to. Hey, we're good people. We're sons of Abraham. He was good. We're good. I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. How do you like that? So don't brag. As you're really a son and daughter of Abraham, you'll know your sin. And you'll trust in God. Of course, these are the kind of words that infuriated the crowds. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John said to them, what was he saying? You supposedly righteous Pharisees are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire? We don't want to listen to that old grouch, John the Baptist. Well, now, later on, Christ comes. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Christ comes along, and the people whose hearts had been cut to the quick by repentance and the word of God through John the Baptist began with sorrow, and now they welcomed the Savior with joy. And guess what Jesus did with his disciples? Did he fast? Did he wear sackcloth? Did he eat locusts and wild honey? No, he sat down with them and had banquets, even with the hated tax collectors and those wicked prostitutes that were out there on the streets. And he ate and drank with them and rejoiced with them. And now the Pharisees who said of the disciples of John the Baptist, look at those old sad sacks over there in sackcloth and ashes and weeping over their sin. Now he says, look at those stupid people over there laughing and having fun with their Savior. Well, he's not really their Savior. They didn't think that was true. So Jesus was not like John. He was instead rejoicing with his disciples. And what do they call him? A glutton and a drunkard. He eats too much, he drinks too much. No, he didn't do either one of those things. But he did eat and drink. And he said, look, the bridegroom has come. This is what you do. You celebrate that your Savior has arrived. And the redemption of my people is at hand. And those who now know their sin know their Savior. And why wouldn't you rejoice? Jesus did not come to call those who thought they were righteous. But he came to call sinners to repentance. And when they do, the angels in heaven rejoice over even one sinner that repents. Think about that. If you've repented of your sins... 
there came a time when the angels broke out in praise. There he is. There she is. That wandering sheep, that foolish rascal. God has changed his heart. God has changed her life. Now these men and women and children are following me. Let us rejoice. And the angels sang over you. That's how much joy they had. Aren't you going to join them in their praise of God? Well, he wants to make a point. They're still not getting it. So he gives them a quick, relatively simple and a little bit puzzling parable. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God, didn't get baptized by John. And then he says, you're going to make fun of me too? Nobody can win. I can't win. John can't win. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? In other words, what are you like? You are like children. Sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now I want you to know that children are sinners too. We all need Christ. And as you probably also know, if you've ever been on the playground or in the classroom or in your home, Children can also be very cruel. If you don't go along with the crowd, well, if you've been to high school or junior high, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't hang out with the cool kids, the girls are over in the corner whispering and giggling and pointing at people they don't like. Or the jocks on the other side of the room making fun of everybody who looks like a wimp compared to them. Making fun of people. Saying these people don't belong with us. We're better than they are. Like all sinners, children are very cruel. If you don't go along with what they say and what they believe, if you don't dance to their tune, this is what Jesus is talking about. They're imagining children in the streets, and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. In other words, if we are having fun, you need to have fun with us. Dance to our tune. Make fun of everybody else, let us say. Think you're better than others. Laugh over sin. Think that bad things are cool. If you don't agree with that, then they're going to exclude you from their crowd. You can't be cool if you don't dance with the sinners. If you don't dance with us, then we're going to forget you and we'll make fun of you all the more. What if we think Something is bad. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. We are sad. You better weep with us. Otherwise, forget you. Children and adults are like that. The world is like that, even today. We're all childish when we don't get our way. There's kind of a childishness within us. We stomp our feet. Ooh, didn't go my way. You're mad. Oh, it's great to do whatever we want. You're really glad because you think you're free. This is the way it is in the world when Christians can't win because the world looks at us and thinks you guys are spoil sports. Oh, it's so obvious. If we don't go along with the homosexual lobby, we are denounced for being spoil sports. If we don't agree that somebody who is a man thinks he's a woman, oh, you're going to hear it. Of course, I'm what I say I am. Even if I was born one way, I'm going to make myself into something else. It's going on right now, this very moment. 
people are being mocked for saying that a guy who pretends he's a girl can participate in women's sports and wipe out the field. But that's okay because this guy thinks he's a girl. Come on. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. It's foolish. But the world goes, if you don't agree with us, you are going to be in trouble. Let us have our fun. Stop being spoil sports. Go along with the crowd. Support them in their so-called freedom, and everything will be fine. But say even a single word of condemnation from the Scripture. Wasn't there a guy, a student in a school, who said there are only two sexes, male and female, and he got disciplined for it? Don't you wear that shirt that says guys are guys and girls are girls. Don't you wear that shirt? That's offensive to me. Well, how about if it's right? How about if it's true that God made us the way we are? And to say we're not what God made us is really talking back to God in a very horrible way. Say one word of condemnation from the Scripture. And you're in big trouble. No matter what you do, you can't win. But of course, if we don't condemn what the world condemns, we're in similar trouble. Does the world believe in things that are wrong? Well, they're usually stupid things. It's easy to Google things that people think we're doing wrong. These are real things now. Instead of thinking about bad sins, the massive destruction of the unborn, for example, we say, well... The whales are in trouble. Not that we shouldn't protect the whales. Okay, they have their place. But what's more important? I just Googled what we're doing wrong. These are real things now. You can laugh if you want, but they're all real. Did you know that you're cooking chicken all wrong? Come on, you Southerners, Southern fried chicken. Did you know you're not doing it right? That's what the world, you know, that's an article. I don't even know what's wrong with it. I'm not sure what they said. Stupid. Did you know you're sleeping on your mattresses all wrong? Man, no wonder I can't get any sleep. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I shouldn't be sleeping horizontally. I don't know what's, what is it that you could change. Did you know that you're doing your laundry all wrong? And every time we read it, we go, what am I doing wrong? i got to find out what's wrong. I must be making big mistakes. Did you know you're washing your hands all wrong? Now we've learned about some things. you got to sing happy birthday or something or other so you can wash your hands for a long enough time. I don't know. Here's one for an involuntary reflex. I wonder how this is possible. Did you know you're breathing all wrong? How can that be? Well, because people who don't have anything wrong with their lives pick on little things that they can criticize other people for, even though they're nothing. Did you know that you're running wrong? You might run a little funny, but you're not running wrong, are you? Did you know you're storing fruit wrong? Here's one that's going to get all of this. Did you know that you're twerking wrong? Who knew? You know it never ends. As soon as you call it silly, they'll come up with something else. The world is a master of inventing things that are supposedly wrong when they're little tiny nothing things and they ignore the big things of the word of God. It's a hobby. It's lots of fun. But it just shows how foolish our hearts are certainly in the church. This happens all the time. You stupid Christians, you're too serious. Lighten up. I heard a sermon the other day, and the guy was all up in arms about sin, of all things. Or you might say, you Christians, you're sometimes so cheerful, it's nauseating. Get real. There's trouble in life. Start realizing there's a whole bunch of injustice in the world, and why don't you be crusaders with us? 
You come and listen to a sermon and it's too heavy. The next one's too simple. The church is too touchy-feely, then it's too condemning. Christians are too dull or they're too frivolous. Ultimately, such people want God to dance to their tune. God, you dance when we play the tune and you do what we want and that's all there is to it or else we're not going to pay attention to you. Nothing will please the heart that feels no conviction over real sin. That's because, and because of that, we believe in what's called the double standard. There's rules for everybody else, but not for me. All right, this is a famous one. I like this one, because I'm driving along the road all the time. And of course, if you're in traffic, the traffic's not too bad in Huntsville, but if you're in traffic somewhere else, anyone slower than you is automatically an idiot, right? You idiot, me, me, get out of the way. Anybody who passes you in the left lane, what is he? He's a maniac. So the guy in front of you going too slow is an idiot. The guy that passes you too fast is a maniac. So what are you? Well, of course, I'm perfect. I'm going the exact right speed. Everybody ought to do what I do because I'm the standard of anybody and anybody ought to admit that I'm just the smartest person in the world. You, of course, are opinionated, and that's kind of stupid, but I'm assertive because I'm right. I'm always right, by the way, right? So, therefore, I can yell at you, but you can't yell at me. Who do you think you are? I can yell at you all I want, but you can't yell at me. Oh, 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 I feel offended. The hypocrisy is incredible. The double standard. We put ourselves in a unique category of one. I'm me and you're not. That's all you need to know. R.C. Sproul used to go on college campuses and he would interact with unbelievers. One time he was talking about salvation and Christ and the Bible. And one guy, you can picture him, kind of a snowflake kind of guy, standing up and going, well, you shouldn't be so certain about God. And he goes, why not? Well, we don't even know whether God exists. And, and we certainly can't tell what's right and what's wrong. There's no such thing, he said, as right or wrong. And R.C. Sproul says, so you shouldn't say there's right and wrong, right? You mean to say it's wrong to say there's right and wrong? The kid goes, ah, uh, never mind. R.C. Sproul was able to say, according to the word of God, we all know what's right and wrong in our hearts, but we don't know when to admit it. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If Christians say what God says, then we're all wrong. If we don't say what the world says, we're all wrong. It's an amazing people thing for people that say they don't believe in right and wrong to say that you're wrong. Well, it's stupid because we're all dead in trespasses and sins. He who hates me, Proverbs says, loves death. He who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Doesn't make any sense, does it? We love death. We love foolishness. In fact, we love insanity. That's why we can say crazy stuff and get away with it. You see, for Christians, we just can't win. Thanks be to God, there is more than worldly foolishness. There is God's wisdom. Tell me what it is. Where do I find wisdom? Well, Jesus ends up 
saying, children want you to dance or cry. Do what we say. So John comes saying cry, and you think he's crazy. Jesus says, come and dance, and you think he's crazy. Which one is it? Wisdom is justified by all her children. This is a puzzling proverb. What does it mean? Wisdom is justified by all her... Who are the wise people? Those that listen to God, in the case of John the Baptist, who admit their sinners. That's true wisdom. Impossible without the Spirit of God. True wisdom says, I'm wrong. (laughs) True wisdom also says, God is right. If you don't carry anything away from today, just remember, I'm wrong, God is right. But when he comes to declare us righteous, he says, even though you're wrong, I forgive you. Even though you've broken my word, I'm going to show you how to live and how to be wise and how to be true children of wisdom, beginning with admitting the justice of God that we're condemned in his sight, repenting of our sin, finding mercy in Christ. And now we have true freedom admitting God is right and we're wrong. We come to God and say, God, are you going to save us when we're so wrong? And he says, exactly, that's what I came to do. I came to you that you might admit your faults and your failures. And not only that, then I forgive you. Then I give you new life. Then finally you admit what life is all about. It's about listening to God, believing in his son, trusting in his righteousness, clothed in that righteousness now and forever. You were once children of folly. Now you are children of wisdom. And now we find three brief amazing facts. God, instead of being condemned, is now justified. They now get it. You are justified when you speak. Psalm 51 says. In other words, David has to say, You are right, God. I was wrong. You are justified when you speak. They finally see, all true believers finally see, that God was right all along. They saw that he was just. They saw that he was right. They saw that they were sinners, that they saw that there is salvation. God wins. He is justified. He is right. And because he wins, we who flee to him are victors. We actually win. Sin loses. Foolishness loses. Because Christ has come into this world, and instead of being condemned by us, we say, you know, Christ is right. He's the only way of salvation. I have a doctor who likes to talk to me. He's a Christian too. And he always says, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way and the truth and the life? I say, absolutely. I'm not sure what he would say if if I said no. I guess he's still trying to help me. But you know, he's an encouragement. Christ is justified. Is Christ right? Is he right about you? Is he right about the world? Repentance under John is followed by faith in Christ. Jesus wins. Faith wins the victory. We lose our pride. We confess our sins. So John prepared the people for repentance, and Jesus comes as the object of our faith. How perfect is that? But you've got to get it right. Confess your sins first. 
grieve and mourn first. And then you can rejoice. Don't go backwards. Don't think everything's fine, let's have a party, because you're going to grieve forever over your sin. We justify Jesus, as it were, by saying, you know what, you're right. You went to the cross for a good reason. You died for a purpose. We now weep with those who weep over their sins and we rejoice with those who rejoice over their salvation. God is justified. Christ is justified. He's right. Christ is right. We see them both. And we see Jesus as the creator and the redeemer of his people. And then, of course, it says wisdom is justified by her children. Well, think about this for a minute. Who are the children of John the Baptist? You are a child of John the Baptist if you repent of your sins. You're admitting John was right. Sin is the source of all problems in this world. Sin is a result of God showing us every day how bad we are, not how unjust he supposedly is. We are the ones that are the problem, not God. And he's trying to show us he's been patient for millennia as he brings his people home by having their faces go to the ground in sorrow. Now we are in Christ. We who are the children of John the Baptist now become the children of Christ. We are made right with God and we are justified, declared righteous, not because we're good in ourselves, we already admitted we're not, but because Christ is good, we get to bask in the sunlight of God's grace and simply delight in his salvation and his righteousness, remembering that that victory of Jesus over sin cost him a lot. There is an old general who said, we have met the enemy and he is ours. Who was that, MacArthur? I can't forget who it was. Maybe it's Patton, I can't remember. We have met the enemy and he is ours. There's an old cartoon in the newspaper used to say, we have met the enemy and he is us. That's better. We're the enemy. We're our own worst enemy. But Christ has come to show us that fact and then to help us to know that he is a friend of sinners. The world thinks we are losing, but we're not going to lose. We're going to win because Christ won. God won. Not due to anything in ourselves, but due to his grace. So let John play the dirge, and we should mourn over our sins. Let Jesus play the flute, and we will dance for joy. In fact, the Bible says he will change our mourning into dancing. Now that's the right way. Shall we pray? O Lord God, we have come before you today by nature thinking that we do not need you. But our very confession before you that you are God means that we admit that you are right about everything and we should listen to you, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. Hear our prayers, Lord. Convict us of sin. Lead us into salvation in Jesus' name.